you're flying by the seat of your pants. And I like flying by the seat of my pants. As I'm doing it, I'm thinking, oh my God, this is exhausting. But I love doing it because I, I think it brings out the best in you. And often in organisations I run, you're sort of flying it as you're building it. You know, you've got to continue with the service provision, but you've got to optimise. And that's really hard when everyone's in a particular rhythm. So the good thing about those sorts of things is that you learn some really critical elements around what makes something successful from a governance point of view and from a team's point of view and from the individual practitioner's point of view and then what's going on in the community. So there are lots of different pieces in the puzzle and you've got to get them to all come together at the one time. Welcome to the Thriving in Complexity podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Libertilia, and I'd love for you to join me as I peek behind the scenes of complex situations and workplaces and interview leaders and experts who will challenge your thinking, inform and inspire your leadership so you and your team can thrive in the volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world we live in. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Chris Tanti. Chris has an extensive background in the health sector and began his career in social work as a mental health practitioner before transitioning into management and leadership positions some 25 years ago. Chris holds qualifications from La Trobe and Melbourne universities, as well as the Harvard Business School. He's an accomplished CEO both in Australia and the United States, having worked across mental health, disability, and aged care. He has held a range of CEO positions, including Australia's National Disability Services, Royal Freemasons Aged Care, and Headspace. He currently holds the position of CEO at the Leukemia Foundation and is a director of the Community Services Industry Alliance. Chris has a long-held passion for improving health outcomes and ensuring people receive quality care and services that are fit for purpose and focused on client outcomes. He has been known throughout his career as someone who develops game-changing health services, and that's been informed by his considerable experience working with governments and in advocacy, program, and organizational innovation. Chris shares some interesting insights and reflections about his life and work experiences and how they've helped him thrive in complexity. I hope you enjoy the episode. Chris, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. My pleasure. I'm sure our listeners would love to know something about you that not a lot of people know about. Is there something you'd be happy to share? Um, I think a lot of people would know that I grew up in a in a big family. There were nine of us living in a three-bedroom home, and it was a really interesting, you know, when I when I compared myself to all, all of my friends, I mean, we had a very interesting life, and we, you know, big extended family and so you know it was it was a it was a pretty nice sort of full life but we did grow up in an area that was full of sort of gang warfare in lots of ways and uh and a lot of violence um outside of the home so it was quite it was quite difficult and um and that you know many of the kids that I went to school with ended up in prison which I subsequently found out because I ended up working in um, the prison that was in my suburb. So uh, I suppose most people don't know that much about my childhood or, that, or my background. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think people would know about my 
you know, if they knew me at all, they would know about my professional history. Yes. And Chris, how do you think that background has shaped how you approach life? Um, well, well, I think, I think uh, I am a more sort of, you know, I live in the grey zone. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't view things in a black and white way. So when, when I was a 14-year-old, two friends of mine murdered a local gun shop owner who they worked for because uh, they wanted money and he wouldn't give them money, so they literally blew his head off. Um, and I, so I knew them as my friends and good guys, you know, even though I knew they were mm. into a whole lot of wacky stuff. Um, and so, you know, sitting with that contradiction of two young guys who murdered someone in cold blood, but knowing that there was another side to them, you know, I, I, I guess has really helped me in my career in working with people because I, because I am focused on the more optimistic uh, side of an individual and we all have them yeah. uh, and we all have our shitty sides as well. But, you know, the, but I am more focused on the opportunity within a person or an organisation or a team or, um, and, and I know that we're all complex, you know, so, uh, so I think it's shaped me in that way. Okay. It is a very confronting thing to have happen. I had someone that I grew up with ended up going to jail for murder as well. And yeah. that knowing that that happened just didn't align with my experience of that person. Yeah. So it does make you really question things. Yeah, it does. And, you know, context is really important and family history is really important and the way we're raised is really important. And, you know, there's so many variables that get mixed up in all of this that, um, you know, when I'm doing my work, regardless of whether it's organisational uh, work or, you know, when I did clinical work, it was it was really trying to unravel the complexity and then work out the motivation and and be clear about the opportunities for that person and then work with them through it. Mm. And so, Chris, you've had quite a long career in the mental health space. Would you like to tell our listeners a little bit more about what attracted you to that type of work? Um, look, I, you know, for me it was a long journey. Um, I, I didn't know what I wanted to, to do or be when I left school. Um, and, you know, the my sort of frame of reference was quite narrow. Everybody I grew up with wanted to be an accountant or a hairdresser and I didn't want to be either of those things, <laughs> um, nor did I want to be a mechanic. So it was, you know, largely uh, it, it was a search for me and um, and eventually I, I, you know, at the age of I think I was 20, I went into university and did an arts degree and it just opened up my world to something, you know, sociology and economics just broadened my scope and my vision of the world. And then, you know, you acquire a whole lot of friends at the time who were doing really interesting things. So so I, I sort of broadened my outlook that way and then I travelled a lot, um, opened up a cafe, did a whole lot of things and it was really when I owned a cafe at the age of, I don't know, 26 or something, that I started to get into, um, I, 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 the cafe I owned was in an area where there were lots of students and students would come in at night and they had no money and I'd sort of give them stuff for nothing. 
and they would talk about their pressures and their problems and some of them were fairly significant, you know, kids who'd moved from the country to the city and had no friends and uh, and, and I, it suddenly dawned on me that I loved doing it. I really loved doing it and I thought I was good at it and I had no training um, mm. other than sociology and economics. You know, it's an interesting combination. And really from there I thought, okay, I want to do something around helping people and I, I applied for psychology, law and social work and got into all three and at the end of the day, given the type of personality I was, I decided I'd do social work. Mm-hmm. Because it was varied, and so I, you know, I knew doing having done my research that I could do clinical or face to face work with people. I could work in the community space. I could work in mental health, child protection. It, you know, just goes on and on and on. So it was broad, and I knew if I got bored, and I was the sort of guy who got bored, I knew I could move about. And so, really, it was that it was that experience of, you know, my childhood, coupled with. And then, you know, a huge delay, but with a whole lot of other experiences, but coupled with that cafe experience of thinking, oh, actually, I think I might be okay at this. Um, mm. And then I just launched. And you ended up as the CEO of Headspace for quite a long time. I think you were there for around a decade, weren't yeah. you? Yeah. yeah. And you were there from the very early days I think, weren't you? And yeah, so I, I was the first CEO. I, I got in there before there was a Headspace Centre and, and we basically had a government contract. Um, and, uh, and Headspace was really interesting to run, you know, great concept um, of, you know, no wrong door for young people, you know, a community of interest around young people and, um, and really uh, making access to care simple so that was the concept behind headspace so i loved it and i you know as a clinician i'd worked with young people and you know you know either in a university environment or a more clinical environment Mm -hmm. so you know i i i I knew that when you work with young people it can be complex you know they can be involved in housing and drug and alcohol services and a whole range of you know forensic services and a whole range of services and Young people aren't the most organised people on the face of the earth from the point of view that, you know, they've got other things they want to do and, and they want to have fun. So you've got to make the service system simple for them. Otherwise, they, you know, you set up an appointment with a homeless agency and they're off doing something else like, you know. Um, so if you can create simplicity in this in a very complex service system, mm-hmm. um, your chances of better outcomes are better. Yeah. Um, so... So Headspace was really everything I wanted to do uh, at the time. And it was interesting from a governance perspective, from a clinical perspective, like everything about it was interesting. It was political. It was in primary care and not in um, in traditional mental health services. Yeah. So it was, just, it was a departure from... The usual, and I, I like interesting things. Um, and my career largely has been around reform. So Headspace just, you know, Headspace was right on the money for me as a as a person. And and it kept changing and it kept growing, so it kept being interesting. So, yeah, so I stayed there for 10 years and we put 100 centres on the ground and, um, you know, and we set it up in Copenhagen and we set it up in Tel Aviv and... Um, you know, and, and 
you know, went to the US with it. So, you know, it was a, it was a really interesting model globally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a great experience. But, you know, and, and, and for me, before that, I turned over every two or three years in jobs because I, you know, I nailed it, understood what I was doing, and then it was, okay, so what else am I going to do? And, and Headspace just kept t- changing. So I wasn't, and, you know, I wasn't um, the sort of person that had a lot of media experience. So I was doing media work and I was doing marketing and communications and we were doing finance and we were doing systems reform and policy and, and research. And, you know, so, so it just, it was so complex but interesting. Yeah. And I mean, it really did sit at the center of a very, very complex system in terms of all of the many things that go on around young people. And I know from work that I've done in that space that everything is tends to operate in silos and programs and doesn't really focus on the young person and yeah. their needs and how to no. how do you design things if you're thinking about person-centered design there's a lot of challenges because the money comes from so many different places and yeah. so it is very very complex so i'm really curious about how that shaped how that experience has shaped the way that you approach organizations that you've since led that that i want sorry that, sorry, how that experience of um, growing Headspace and what it became to be in that very complex environment has actually shaped the way that you approach leading in the organisations that you've since led. Um, so Headspace taught me, and, and, you know, I mean, a lot of the work that I did was, you know, before that was, you know, innovative programs or, transforming organisations that had got a bit stale and lost their way. Um, Headspace was a massive sort of startup, and and I never find these things daunting. I don't think to myself, shit, how am I going to do this? I think, wow, this is interesting. We've got to chart a course. But other people would say, you know, you're never going to get this done. I don't believe that when I walk into a job. Um, I, I think sometimes naively, that I can pull it off um, and that it's possible and Mm -hmm. that if it makes sense for the community, then it's a job that I'm interested in. And so when I think about the way Headspace was was structured, I I would structure paediatric care the same way I would structure adult care, aged care. Like I would do all those, you know, you just have a one-stop shop for people. And yes, there needs to be complexity and all that sort of stuff, but you know, I just remember sort of, you know, I'm working with my mum before she passed away and it was, you know, the range of services that she needed as a, you know, an 80-year-old where you just, you know, schlepping around town, um, you know, going to podiatrists, going to uh, dementia care people, you know, you just, you know, and then, and then you settle in residential aged care and it all comes to you Um and, and that's helpful, except aged care needs a complete rethink. Um, so, so for me, it really is about thinking, okay, so what's the vision? Where, where do we, we want to go with this? And then going for it, you know, and, and, you know, doing it in a stepwise sort of strategic way, you know, getting your strategy right, getting your plan right. Um, so Headspace taught me, and I guess my experience professionally, other than a couple of exceptions, is that anything's possible. 
um, if, if you can, if you vision it well, and you've got the right staff who are on the bus and share the vision, anything's possible, you know. And in the headspace, what you had were a whole lot of true believers, you know, um, who yes. who wanted to make this right for young people. You, you you couldn't you couldn't beat that. So the recipe was, you know, didn't start off that well. I got to tell you, like there are a whole lot of there was a whole lot of resistance. But once people got the concept and they could see the idea operationalized, the community loved it. Young people loved it in particular, and their parents loved it. Um, and you know, if you read all the old documents and newspaper articles around um, Headspace, there was a lot of controversy, but. You know, my view was, yes, that was punishing, but my view was, well, I don't much care what you think. This is what young people and their families are asking for. I'm just delivering it. So Yeah. And so practically, what are some of the things that you did to try and get people onto that bus? Um, look, it really, it really, it was in like a lot of grassroots movements um, where there is identified need it really just took off on its own. And, yes, we had to do a lot of media. Yes, we had to do a lot of promotion. And, yes, it was a totally different way of conceptualising healthcare delivery. And, you know, I, I sort of largely I had a bit of corporate sort of health experience, but I'd largely had um, a public sector experience. And, you know, you don't market your services because you don't want people to go because you're overwhelmed. Um, mm. So, you know, but we had to get into branding and, and – um, advertising and celebrities and, you know, ambassadors and and politicians and, you know, it was um, it was very interesting from that point of view. So it really pushed and pulled me and expanded my thinking mm-hmm. in lots of ways. So would it be fair to say that you really used a lot of influence to evolve Headspace, that although you knew the direction that you wanted to head in, it was really looking at where were those opportunities to help bring those possibilities to life. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 look, you're, you're flying by the seat of your pants and and I like flying by the seat of my pants. And I, yep. I sort of, you know, as I'm doing it, I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is exhausting. But I love doing it because I, I think it brings out the best in you. And, and you know, often, um, often in organisations I run, you sort of, flying it as you're building it, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you've got to continue with the service provision, but you've got to optimise and and that's really hard when everyone's in a particular rhythm. So, um, uh, yeah, I I mean, the the good thing about those sorts of things is that you learn some really critical elements around what, what makes something successful and you know, from a governance point of view and from a team's point of view and from the individual practitioner's point of view and then what's going on in the community. And so there there are lots of different pieces in the puzzle and you've got to get them to all come together at the one time. Mm. And, and sometimes they don't, but the majority will. The majority yeah. will. I guess I'm an optimist, although sometimes I feel like a pessimist. But, you know, when, I, when it comes to doing things, I don't look back. I just, I just keep... You know, I got my eye on the prize and I'm I'm very focused on it. Yeah. And so when you were in that sort of an environment, what were some of the things that you did as a leader to try and help bring people along with you? 
Um, I think I think the most important thing when we were starting was really about getting people on board. And, you know, these were the days where people get a contract and then you, they nick off and do their thing and they're not accountable. But this was a highly accountable because um, it was a pilot project, so it was highly accountable to the Commonwealth. And there were clear KPIs and clear metrics. And you're dealing with a sector that, yes, has their metrics, but this, this was a different set because they were sort of used to state government funding. It was the first time the Commonwealth had really done anything in mental health, and now, as we know, they do quite a lot in mental health. Yes. Um, so it was the first time the Commonwealth had got into mental health service provision. And so everyone was used to their state-based systems. And so in the early days, it was really about lots of conversations. And I'm not a process man. I like the end game. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, uh, and that, that's probably one of my biggest challenges, um, that I, I'm all for having a very quick discussion. Um, I'm not a big fan of protracted process. Um, because I can just see how this thing needs to be put on the ground and I can see that even if we don't go through that process of consultation, I'll still get it on the ground and it won't be perfect and we just tweak it. Yeah. Um, but that's not the case when you're dealing with stakeholders and you need to um, sell them on an idea. And so, you know, in the early days, there were lots and lots and lots of meetings and sometimes those meetings went very well and other times they didn't at all. And so then we would refer to the obligations under the contract um, and other times we would try and get people to sort of understand what it was that we were doing. But the thing that brought us all together, the thing that we're all really, really clear about was the importance of getting it right for young people. Mm-hmm. And so when you took, you know, sometimes there are about 30 different organisations involved in a headspace centre when you stripped back the brands and the different professional perspectives and the different disciplines and all that sort of stuff and you put young people in the middle of it, um, everyone shut up and the politics went away. And it's true when, you know, in any organisation I've run where you, where you, if you get back to basics and you forget about the funding and you forget about the politics and you forget about the stakeholders and you forget about the brutality of running an organisation, and you think about um, what the patient needs and what their family needs, I think the solutions are pretty straight up and down. They're really very simple. Yeah. But the complexity is about politics and accountability and all those sorts of things. Mm. And so, Chris, you've gone from a, a, you know, starting up Headspace and then taking that to be a very large, very successful organisation to actually now leading a very established organisation that you've come in after that's been there for quite some time. Yeah. So how is that different? You know, what was What's most struck you as different about that? Well, you know, I think the thing about Headspace and some of the other places that I've worked at is that um, you have an opportunity to fashion something that hasn't existed. So you, 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 you're putting something on the ground that, you know, there, there is no blueprint mm-hmm. um, in, um, you know, in the disability space, you know, disability services have been around for a long period of time and the NDIS completely shook it up. Uh, and I think that was a really, really good thing because I think 
a whole lot of people were very, very comfortable, um, not necessarily in a bad way, but in a way that wasn't great for the consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for me, it's always about the consumer of services. So um, disability, aged care, where I had a bit of a stint for a while, um, you know, what we were trying to do as an organisation didn't necessarily fit with what the consumers in aged care or disability or drug and alcohol services or, you know, any of the services that I've worked in didn't necessarily fit. And I think it's true. I think organisations lose their way over a long period of time. It becomes about the organisation and it doesn't become about the people that we're here to serve. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've never really stayed in an all, you know, Headspace is probably the longest gig I had, but I've really never stayed in an organisation long enough to be that battle wary. Yes. Um, and so for me, I bring, that's the energy I bring, you know, and, and I think in the Leukemia Foundation, from the Leukemia Foundation's perspective, um, I think it has done for a really long period of time, it has done fantastic work and made an amazing difference to so many people's lives. But the reach has been limited. Um, the the innovation, you know, there was a lot of innovation in the early days. And again, grassroots, a whole lot of people in the community saying, this isn't good enough, let's do this. Um, that's, that, that's the heritage. And I think as it has stood up since the 70s, I think over the last few years, sort of, you know, it's rested on its laurels a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, it's really about, okay, how do we bring this into the 21st century and how are we supporting people in the way that they want to be supported? And, you know, certainly I've had a lot of feedback from from people to suggest that we're not meeting their expectations. And, you know, I think a lot of it's not, not unique to the Leukemia Foundation. You can talk mm-hmm. to any health consumer and they'll, you know, rubbish their GP practice or they'll rubbish their local hospital or they rubbish their experience in ED, um, you know, and sometimes there's not much you can do about that. But when there is something you can do about it and when you can shape your services to be more consumer-friendly and meet the expectations of patients, you need to do that. Yeah. So that's that's what we're doing. And I think one of the challenges as an organisation is that people's expectations change over time. So when you do rest on your laurels, you really can get left behind. Yeah, that, that that's absolutely true. And the workforce changes, right? So the consumer is so much better informed um, and they can – search anything online and they can be clear about what's going on in other states and other countries and so why aren't we doing any of that sort of stuff? Mm. Why can't I get this drug here when I can get that drug in the UK? Or um, So, you know, it's not only service providers but governments are under a heck of a lot of pressure to mm. evolve and, and move quickly in this space and, you know, I think the workforce is too um, and... Uh, and the workforce is hard to to shift to move, but you know when you when I look at junior people coming through the sort of junior clinicians, um, they're all 
bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, um, and they all want to make a difference. And I think the older clinicians have gone through, you know, seven iterations of this, you know, different administrations and mm. different ways of being. And, you know, you look at health services and they get they get <laughs> recreated every couple of years. Yes. Um, and everyone's a bit exhausted by it. But ultimately... It is, you know, and then you've got different governments, you know, and so the, the whole landscape can change on you. But I think in some sectors they're all immune to it um, because their their funds are private or, you know, they, they raise their money through fundraising so they don't have to be as adaptable. So, but ultimately for me the consumer rules and if you want to exist as a really good health service, you've got to provide great quality services that people want to consume or need to consume in our case. And so I know we've talked a little bit about getting people to get on the bus with you. What's When you've got a startup, you're, you've obviously got that vision and you're growing and taking people with you as you go. When you come into an organisation where things are pretty entrenched, what have you found makes the most difference in helping people to get on the bus that you want them on? Well... Um, sometimes the reality is they're not on the bus, right? Yes. Um, and so I think I think to get them, you know, to give everybody the chance to get on the bus, I think you need to articulate a clear vision mm-hmm. with a clear strategy that backs it up um, and you need to let people know why you're taking this particular path. Um, not all people are sold on that. Um, and certainly here, some people haven't been sold on that. So mm-hmm. you get workforce churn, which is great because people are saying, no, I don't want to do that. Um, okay. Uh, and then they'll leave. Um, so that's great. Um, you know, I'd rather people leave than be disruptive and etc. cetera. Um, so, but it, but it really is a process of consultation and explaining to people why things do need to change or why we need to optimise in a particular area or why, you know, we've sort of fallen behind the other organisations and not delivering. So um, equally it's it's about saying, well, you know, there are, there are opportunities here or there are opportunities there. Why aren't we mm-hmm. thinking about those sorts of things? So um, I think if you explain things to, you know, it's really difficult when people are, emotionally attached to the past. Um, I'm not emotionally attached to the past. I never have been. Um, I'm emotionally attached and connected to the patient. Yes. That's what I'm connected to. I'm not I'm not wedded to an organisation. I'm not wedded to its history. Um, I'm respectful of it, but I'm, I'm really, when someone says, you know, in the case of Headspace or Rage Care or um, when someone says, you've really made a difference to my life, you've really made a difference to our family, you've really made a difference to my mother's life, she feels so much better here now. I mean, like that, just that's just music to my ears. That's what we're here for. We're not here for anything else. Um, so, so, and that's why we all start in this sector, right? But sometimes you lose sight of that. Mm-hmm. You, it is so easy to lose sight of the of the motivators 
to get in, but I've never lost sight of it I, mm. and I never want to lose sight of it. And, and if it means compromising that, then I'm out of there. So getting people connected back to the purpose of yeah. why you're really there, not the history yeah. of the organisation, but the purpose, why who you were yeah. created to serve in the right, in the first place is yeah. a really key part of that. Yeah, and, and, and making sure they're connected to it, right? I mean, because mm. people can say that they're connected to delivering great care to older people or people with mental health issues or it's really easy to get distracted and you think that you're doing that, but actually your actions are quite different. So, you know, I mean, I, in lots of ways, you know, uh, the conversation here is, you know, when I first started was not necessarily about patient care. Um, in fact, it was not at all about patient care. Um, but I knew everyone was passionate about the patients, but everything we talked about was finance. Um, and now everything we talk about is the patient. Yeah. And, and finances are super important to us because we don't, you know, we, we need to provide services. But, um, but I think if you've got the right motivation, I think if you're really providing great care and I think if the community knows that, then um, then all will be fine. And that might be naive, but I think all will be fine mm-hmm. because I think organisations that fail in this space or in any space is that they don't have their finger on the pulse. I mean, you know, Kodak is a great example of an organisation that was massive, absolutely massive, huge employer here in in Victoria. Um, And they didn't believe in the digital world. Kodak no longer exists. Mm. So when you don't have your finger on the pulse, um, you sort of deserve to go away. Mm. Um, And and, and I think there are a lot of organisations that have sort of forgotten about why they're there. And a lot of people that work in those organisations have just been enculturated in a particular way. And it really is about blowing that up in a really nice way um, and getting people back on the bus. So as a leader, it's really about focusing people on the right conversations, giving them the right sort of priority, but also being able to look at the broader context and understand what's going on around the organisation and how that's shifting and how that needs to influence the direction that you're taking. Yeah, and, and, and being clear about that path and having clear objectives and KPIs and all those ugly things, you know, I mean, the, the, you know, so you can measure your progress mm-hmm. um, or you can see that you're failing, you know, and then you can try again. So it really is about having clear targets mm. um, and, and then from a consumer perspective, being clear about, the outcomes and mm-hmm. and whether they're happy with the service provision. So really measuring um, satisfaction with what it is that you're doing. So you know that you're, you know, and, and, and not just saying, were you happy with the service you got, really getting underneath what, what was great about what was delivered. So you can do more of that and less of the stuff that didn't work. 
So you're really looking for not just did we hit the target, but what are the insights we can use to do better next time? Yeah, and 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 grow um, things, and you know, broaden the scope, and and you know, if you think about what COVID did to to health services, completely transformed, and what it did to the corporate world, and what it did to you know everybody really uh, completely transformed the way we operated transformed the way we provided care transformed the way we worked i mean you know com- you know and 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 i when we first started i mean you know i was in victoria so we had some pretty incredible lockdowns mm. uh that really knocked the stuffing out of people i think but um i was fascinated by that whole period because there was no way to get through it without significantly shifting the way you operated. Yeah. And and no one had a choice and we had to do it. Yeah. And so there was a lot of innovation over that period, you know, the whole idea of working from home. And, I, you know, I'm not a terrific fan of working from home, but I really like the idea of working of work uh, flexibility. And I've always run family-friendly environments, Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, people need to be able to, you know, when their kids are sick and et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, this just creates real opportunity for us to, to have that, you know, working from home element where you can hang the clothes on the line in between uh, meetings. You can cook a meal. You can clean up the kitchen a bit. You can wash a load of clothes, you know. I mean, and, and deal with the plumber who needs to come in and, you know, so you can – you know, you can actually manage your life mm. better and not get to the weekend where you've got a million jobs to do because you've been at work all week. And I, yeah. I really love that. I mean, one of the great mm. things for me about working from home was that the weekends were my own. Sure, we were in lockdown, but I didn't have to do anything. That I would, <laughs> you know, like I'd done all the cooking, I'd done all the cleaning, yeah. I'd done all the washing. Um, it was all done, so the weekends were about chilling. And that, that was unusual right so um but i think you know the the reason why i think we've sort of got to come back a bit is because i think it's affecting culture i think it's it's affecting um you know i think it's it's i think people have become a bit isolated and i I don't think it's good for any of us to do that we live in a community COVID taught us that the community was really important we rallied behind um, people who were, you know, isolated and et cetera. Mm. Um, I was running aged care at the time when it happened and, and um, some of my staff who were single living in one-bedroom apartments said, please, can I come back in the office? And I said, yeah. I, I always went into the office and I just thought, great. And they were happy and I was happy and, you know, no one got COVID and it was fine. Mm. Um, I, I, I think, you know, the... There are some great opportunities in this work from home thing, but I, I think there are some significant risks mm-hmm. that as individuals we tend to not see because we're not running organisations, but I think is it's really having a significant impact on culture, mm-hmm. I think, and um, and it will be interesting to see what happens over the next little while and mm-hmm. how uh, flexible work, workplaces or inflexible workplaces become. Yeah. So reflecting back on that experience, Chris, what does thriving and complexity mean to you? Um, 
Well, it, it, it means meeting the challenges of the time and meeting your own targets and your own expectations and your own sort of fantasies about what the organisation can achieve. Um, and, you know, a lot of it is fantasy, right? So you, you have this picture of, you know, in my case, how devastating it would be to receive a blood cancer diagnosis mm. and how devastating it would be for your family and the impact financially and the impact socially um, and what it does to people's lives. Like, it is absolutely devastating. It completely... It completely... Um, Changes. It's a life-threatening illness that changes everything. Um, and then, when you think about treatment and how toxic, it's um, it's an existential crisis. There's there's no two ways about it. So you want I, as a CEO, want the best for these people, the very best that they can get. So you have these tremendous fantasies about what's possible. And you talk to people about what they'd like and then you go for it. Um, so you've got that saddled with changes in government, changes in government policy, changes in, um, you know, public health orders and, and a whole range of other things. And you just got to keep your eye on the prize. You, you, you really, and you have to keep your team focused on that when at the same time they're worried about COVID, they're worried about their kids, they're worried about their parents, they're worried about their grandparents, you know, and they're not going to the funeral. They're, I mean, you know, that, that, that period of time where we couldn't even go to funerals, mm. um, it was just horrendous. And in lots of ways we've forgotten about that. Um, so how do you keep focused on where you want to go as an organisation and as a community of people who are trying to offer something mm. to, to others, when you've got this constant interference. Um, and I'm hearing this import, the importance of human connection as a thread through yeah. that. And yeah. when, when that gets lost, how that affects the environment. Well, it it, for it all dies, right? I mean, it, it, mm. it just withers away. When you can't connect... Um, you know, we're, we're amazing animals, I mean, you know, as people, and but we need each other, not all the time, um, but we do need each other. We do need to, you know, we, we are social beings, uh, largely. Um, you know, even those who are most introverted need the sort of the connection. Um, so how do you do that in a context where you're not connecting at all? where you're on mm. video screens and you feel like you're connecting and you feel like you're doing your work and you are doing your work, but but there's nothing like the conversation around the the kettle. What used to be a kettle, it's now a bloody tap. Um, <laughs> there, there's, you know, there's nothing like having a bit of fun during the day and, mm. and, and understanding where people are in their lives and what their challenges are. And, you know, I mean, they're, they're, humanity is really important, so... Yes, yes. Chris, I'm curious, have you ever been in a complex situation where afterwards you've looked back and thought, oh, I wish I had really handled that differently? Is no, anything- everything I do is everything I do is perfect. 
Uh, I've never failed once and, um, yeah, lots. Uh, well, not necessarily lots because I tend to think about things a lot. But sometimes my ambition and my passion is not in keeping with that of a board or that of a manager or, you know, so throughout my career I've been out of step with and I've not necessarily read the play or if I have read the play, if I've read the play, I move on. Mm. Um, if I haven't read the play, then it's pretty disappointing. You know, so you, you get employed to do a particular job and then, of course, people can say they want change and then, of course, they don't want change. And, <laughs> Most people and, don't. <laughs> yeah, and my, and my brand of change is a bit all-encompassing. Um, so, so, so sometimes the process, which I'm not great at, is really, really important. And it's not a fault of theirs or a fault of mine. It's it's really about how we all tactically managed a situation or didn't manage a situation. Mm. Um, and so then, you know, then I do think about, okay, so what, what could I have done differently? And I think generally for me it's speed, dialing it back, you know, dialing it, you know, taking your foot off the pedal long enough to see the trees as they're passing by and watching mm-hmm. the pedestrians as they're walking past, you know, not mowing everything down. Um, but because, because I get really, really clear about what I want. I get really clear about the benefits of, you know, the consumer perspective. But sometimes there is a lot of politics and a little a lot of history that you need to go through. Um, so it- Adopting a pace that enables you to take in that broader richness around you and make sense of some of the patterns that might be playing out. Yeah, but I, but I do know at the same time, I can say that as a criticism. I can say that as an area for development, right? I can say that I do know that if we don't move fast enough, I'm not going to be very happy. You know, I, mm. I do know that if we don't get to the point where and this is hard in the NFP space. It's very, it's really hard. In a corporate space, you're just out if you're not doing it. Yep. Um, uh, and and I have some admiration for my colleagues in 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 manufacturing or technology or aerospace or you know. Um, but then you look at NASA and you look at you know the available options now, and you know everyone's starting to speed it up. So I, I think. From an NFP space, government wants more. The community expects more. Some of the staff expect more. Boards certainly expect more. Mm-hmm. And I think you've got to meet those expectations. How you do that, the process of doing that, can be challenging, actually. And I'm really mindful of the saying is that like, sometimes to do more you need or to do more better, you actually need to decide what you're not going to do. Yeah. And one of the challenges for a lot of NFPs is because they have got that really rich, proud history and heritage that they can be very emotionally attached to that. But asking the question about whether it's actually serving their purpose today. Yeah, is um, that, that, that is very hard. 
people do get emotionally attached and stakeholders get emotionally attached to particular things. There are things that we had to let go of uh, during COVID because they just weren't safe for our patients Mm. Um, and we had to completely transform uh, parts of the business and and stakeholders weren't happy about that necessarily but we had no other option Um, and we did put in a substitute but it wasn't the same it wasn't the same for our volunteers who loved doing that particular work it wasn't the same for some of the stakeholders who funded that work Mm. Um, it wasn't the same for the patients who enjoyed those conversations on the way to appointments and it was something that I hated, you know, and I, I, it was done before I came into the job. Um, it was something that I really didn't like presiding over because I really loved that personal, uh, human, committed arrangement. Um, and so, there, you know, there are some disadvantages to some of these things, but, yeah. But, yeah. but. Yes, you do become emotionally, very emotionally attached to, you know, when I think about uh, Headspace, you know, this was transformational. And I think people underestimate the, and I certainly underestimated the the transformation involved. Mm-hmm. You were transforming multiple sectors to operate in a particular way, all of whom didn't want to do it. They wanted the money. They wanted to create the Headspace Centre. They wanted to do it really, really well, but they wanted to do it their way. And their way wasn't going to cut it. It was a different model and everyone... So how do you, how do you, you know, if, you, if you're a mental health service and you're seeing, you know, your $80 million mental health, to, you know, $200 million mental health service and you're getting this $1 million grant to run a Headspace Centre... How do you pivot the way you operate in a particular space to accommodate something that is very small? Mm. Um, but they all did it. They all, you know, they all did it because they all loved the idea of it, um, getting them to, to, to transition that thinking mm. Mm. Um, and, and leave their own brands behind. Was really I know um, Dave Snowden who... Um, co-developed the Kinevin framework, which is a sense-making framework for working in complexity. I heard him speak recently and he said, people will only change when you put them under a cognitive load. So just giving them that real challenge to think completely differently about how they're doing things. Yeah. No, I I agree with that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, if you could go back and give your 25-year-old self some advice, what would you tell yourself? Don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> really, really, I was so, I, you know, my, at 25 I was on a, I was looking for the meaning of life, you know, and, and um, I didn't know who I wanted to be and I travelled a lot and done a whole lot of stupid things with my time. Um, uh, but, but, if you, if you put in the effort and you know where you're going, it'll work out. It'll work out. So, you know, um, you know, and I see this with my children, you know, sort of, should I do this or should I do that? Or, you know, um, and one of them is sort of like, no, I'm just enjoying where I am. I don't, I don't care. You know, yeah, I'll go to uni, you know, whatever. Um, 
he's, you know, my son is not phased by this. My daughter is phased by this. And I keep saying it'll work out. It'll work out. You'll, you know, you're not going to know at the age of 17. Um, and so, you know, what I say to myself is you'll, you, you, you will do something that engages you, that you will love to do, that will make a difference to people's lives and you'll be happy. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, and and you're not as dumb as you think you are. Mm. Really. Very true. Very true. Yeah. yeah. So if people to remember one thing from what we've spoken about today, what would you like them to take away from our conversation? That if you're a patient-based organisation or you're a, you're a non-profit, and I'll, I'll um, coin a phrase from an old mentor of mine who's now died. It's a beautiful, beautiful man. Um, you just can't go wrong doing right. Um you can't go wrong focusing on the patient. You can't go wrong uh, getting the patient, the customer, what they need. You know, and, and if and if that's your north star, you'll be fine, I think. But if your north star is managing up, managing sideways, you know. Um, having the f- political fights, you, you're going to miss out and mm-hmm. and you're going to get distracted from the reason you were there in the first place because we, we are all in this space because we want to make a difference to people lives, people's lives because we care about the community because we care about people. So, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a huge, I think personally, I see it as a huge responsibility. So mm-hmm. if you can keep the patient at the centre of or the client or the customer at the centre of what you do, you'll be fine. And then, of course, there's all the technology overlays and all the complexity, but everything needs to be designed around that customer. Mm. And when you do that, that enables you to find ways to connect systems around people. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, you and I both work for a long time in, in that sort of health and community services space where the people falling through the gaps, silos, you know, people's needs not being met because the system is just not designed around people. Yeah. I think that, you know, having, if everyone had that focus, imagine what could be achieved. Yeah. And, and you know, in, in the headspace we had this saying, no wrong door. Mm. Because, you know, if you were a young person prior to headspace, prior to 2006, and you had a mental health problem, but you also had a homelessness problem. You also had a drug and alcohol problem. You also had dyslexia, God knows what else. You know, and it's an incredibly difficult period of time. Uh, family problems, sexual abuse. Yeah, I mean, you know, some, some mm-hmm. kids have the most horrendous journey. Yeah. You are being bounced around from person to person, service to service, um, and at the end, you're exhausted by it. So, and I don't know where I was going with any of that, but, and, and, and all of those individual services would put the person first. Mm. But as service providers, we weren't. We weren't putting, we, we were servicing a segment of an individual, not the individual. 
and working to what your contract or what your program guidelines say. Yeah, correct. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And so, you know, if I have a person who comes in our organisation who um, has financial problems, and a lot of them do, then, of course, we're dealing with that. They have psychosocial issues. They have relationship issues. They have um, you know, a whole range of things. You know, they're too scared to get back in the workforce, too scared they're going to relapse, all those sorts of things. Um, we are dealing with everything they present, and it's – and whatever they present is in our bail week. It's not, oh, sorry, we can't manage that. We can't do that for you. That service can, no, 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 we will do that for you. Chris, it's been such an interesting conversation and a really wonderful reminder about how important it is that we put people at the centre of the services that are being designed and delivered and evaluating whether or not they've met their purpose if people would like to connect with you, how can they do that? Um, LinkedIn is probably the way, really. Um, that's the that's the easiest way. <laughs> I could I could broadcast my mobile number, but probably not a good idea. <laughs> uh, LinkedIn is probably the easiest way um, to do okay. that. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your conversation today. It's been wonderful to speak to you and you. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you had something you want to revisit or explore in more detail, you can check out the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and you like helping others to open their thinking, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. As always, a big thank you to Leon Fitton and the team at the Podcast Concierge. That's all for this episode. I'll see you next time.